chasing the hunt and I set the pace when I'm running. I always take what I want and I always give it 100. Don't need a bank, no, I'm funded. Play the game like it's nothing. I'm always thankful for something. Don't take for granted, stay humble. Now Hello, welcome to another episode. Hello, Pedro. How are you? <laughs> How are you? Um, oh, the same question at the same time. <laughs> I'll get super excited about this one. We had a, we have a super nice guest, um, and uh, yeah. Well, I I have my assumption that you know probably more about the topic of today's episode than me. Uh, we're gonna talk today about AI, cognitive science, and some other really, yeah. really interesting topics. Um, is there anything? Do you think you have a broad knowledge about it, or do you think well, you're more like a? I wouldn't amateur. say I have a broad knowledge. I have an amateur knowledge. Well, although I studied telecommunications and I was interested in artificial intelligence at the end of my career, um, no, I would say I feel an amateur. <laughs> so it's really cool that we are talking about this because as citizens, I think uh, most people have lots of misconceptions and lots of concerns also in the future of artificial intelligence. And if we have a guest that can clarify some points, that would be awesome. We should have a test at the end just to, to see how much we remembered from this. Okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe our guests can test us. Um, so uh, today with us, we have Kate, um, Kate Dujic, and uh, I hope she's gonna um, fix my pronunciation and because <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the way to pronounce it, but uh, she's a cognitive scientist. She's based in Canada. And as she says about herself, she's an idea enthusiast and caffeinated writer, which I really love. And she's been working in the field of cognitive science since 2014, uh, gained two degrees in the cognitive science. And she wrote a bunch of scientific papers, articles. Um, we read a bunch of those and they're super, super well written. And she has an amazing sense of humor as well and explains all the complex topics in a very, very easy and entertaining way. Um, she's working on some exciting projects at the moment that she, she will hopefully tell us about. Um, hello, Kate. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Hello. Oh my goodness, you got me blushing over here. <laughs> <laughs> Next time we everyone. record videos. <laughs> oh, come on. No. <laughs> by the way, Kate, is, it, is your surname Polish by any chance? It is. You pronounced okay. it the proper native way. Because um, I'm Polish. <laughs> yes, exactly so. There you go. Perfect. Um, okay, cool. I, I often anglicize it, so Dudzik is is how most people say it. But either way, I am so happy to answer. As long as you're saying my name, it's all good. <laughs> so. Nice. Perfect. Okay, cool. Um, is there anything else that I missed in the introduction? Do you have anything to add? Because um, I know that was very short and you have probably way more things that interesting <laughs> about you. Hey, I feel like we all do. That was a beautiful 30-second intro. Thank you. You hit all the important marks, the AI stuff, the CogSci stuff, um, projects on the side, lots of writing. And I'm so excited to be here to talk to you both about some of the intricacies and fun topics surrounding artificial intelligence and cognitive science, where those two intersect and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I see there are two Polish girls against one Spanish uh, man. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. So I'm going to start with a silly question and then I'll let you girls uh, delve with deeper stuff. So given that, that you are an, uh, an artificial intelligence expert, how would you know I am not an artificial intelligence? Is the Turing test still a valid uh, test in the artificial intelligence world? Or how would you tell? So that is an absolutely fantastic question. And I think it brings about a really topical 
debate almost in the AI community where a lot of people find that the Turing test, so for those of you who aren't aware of what the Turing test is, it's essentially become almost like an event in the community where people go through submissions of AI programs and test whether or not they believe them to be artificial or human. So you kind of have to play that guessing game through different types of questions, and it's become more and more ambiguous over time because of the way people are designing their AI structures, almost creating them to beat the system. So it could be the case that you could input the correct answers or the right type of knowledge to specifically beat that test. So does that mean that the test is broken? In a lot of ways, a lot of people would argue, yeah, the Turing test is no longer relevant because in recent years, a lot of the times judges will say, oh, that's a human when really, no, it's a computer or, oh, that's a computer when, oh, it's really a human. So there's been a little bit of ambiguity in that sense. Do I believe that it means that there's conscious computers or we've achieved the enlightened sense of an autonomous human behavioral computational system? Probably not, but I do think we're getting better. I think it's a great sign for the sophistication of the systems. Mm-hmm, I see. So you, you think we're not getting to get a super artificial intelligence at some point or you're pessimistic about that? Oh, goodness. I think anything is possible. Okay. <laughs> it, it really depends on uh, quite a few factors. There's, uh, I'm so sorry for the noise. I hopefully you can no edit word it. All. all good. <laughs> so, uh, there's a few criteria, actually, under something called Newell's test for a theory of cognition, where they look at kind of different components. Of, and this is by Anderson and, and LeBeer, I believe who look at different components of what it means to be a conscious system. So it has to have real-time decision-making. It needs to be able to learn and be dynamic with human-like behavior and so on and so forth. There's a lot of criteria that's involved to exhibit consciousness and human-like behavior or even synthetic organic behavior, which sounds like a contradiction, but hear me out. It's organic behavior produced by a synthetic being. So we get kind of into more uh, complex intricacies surrounding what it means to be an intelligent being and what it means to have a intelligent response in that regard. I think we might get there. Do I think the seed would uh, let us know if it was the case that it was real? I'm not sure. (laughs) It may not be within its best interest there. (laughs) That was a brilliant question, a brilliant answer. (laughs) <laughs> to start everything um like i i love how we are getting into the the topics itself and it's getting super interesting but what we are really curious about as well is like how your adventure with cognitive science started like is it that you always wanted to be a scientist or something or some something or someone inspires you like what, what was the start of the journey Honest to goodness i can tell you the first time i ever heard of noam chomsky was from a no effects song, <laughs> which is a punk rock band. And they wrote this song called Franco Un-American. I looked up every single reference in this song and dove into a wild world of politics, human rights, and then eventually cognitive linguistics, which was a totally new thing to me. I didn't even know what those words meant, let alone what they meant together. And so I kind of walked into the field through punk rock and through music itself. 
when I started university, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I studied topics that I was interested in, and I fell into cognitive science and cognitive modeling, I think in my second year, actually, because I took a course where I realized, oh my goodness, this is more than just traditional therapist style writing articles or doing experiments. This could be something experimental. This could be creative. This could be something that creates more. So what does that mean and where can we go? Okay. So uh, so far, has, uh, has your expectations matched reality now that you are devoted to artificial intelligence? <laughs> um, I don't really know how to answer that question. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I ask the difficult questions here. <laughs> I, think, I think it's the case that our expectations change. True. You know, who I am this year is not the same as who I was five years ago. Mm -hmm. I can say that I'm constantly surprised by my field. I'm in a position where I'm always learning. I'm constantly humbled and pushing myself to be a better version of myself because it's necessary. A lot of my work, surprisingly, includes empathy. So taking a step back, how are the, the people that we're looking to support thinking? Or if I'm looking to emulate a cognitive structure in human beings, how does it come to be? What's the environment that supports this behavior? What is it like to truly walk through those shoes? And what am I missing from that picture? How can I better learn to understand it? Or if, I, if I'm unable to understand it through my own experience, my own upbringing biases that I'm unaware of, how can I get to a, a person or literature where the right type of thing can fill in those gaps or the right person can answer those questions. It's a really interesting field because it's constantly changing and my expectations are also constantly changing. Let's mm -hmm. see. I see we, the other day we read some of your articles, which we really enjoyed. Books you have a very engaging way of explaining what quite complex scientific topics. Um, But probably, could you could you tell us what artificial intelligence actually really means? Um, what's the difference between a strong and weak artificial intelligence? What's machine learning? Uh, to explain it for the dummy people like uh, me. Oh, come on. <laughs> We call us dummies, thank you. I mean, just a summary. People are summary. eager to learn. <laughs> okay. You know thank what's you. funny, though? Taking a step back, even people who work in computer science who apply artificial techniques all the time, don't necessarily get a foundational education of what it means. So you are in a perfectly normal <laughs> seat. Don't even worry. So artificial intelligence is a synthetic form of intelligence system with the necessary knowledge, skills, ability, and environment to perform certain types of complex tasks. So complexity is also a relative term, which we can get into a little bit later if you want. But you mentioned strong and weak AI. So this is quite debatable in the field. And what it refers to is the difference between a system that is designed to either emulate human behavior or perform a specific set of predetermined tasks versus the type of AI of sci-fi nerds dreams everywhere where you've got this strong AI that is adaptable, that is changing, expressing emotions or dynamic in an 
almost unpredictable, but yet very human-like type of fashion. So some of the components here would be being able to make a mistake and then learn from that mistake. So are they able to better understand the environment or even manage interruptions, which is something that is traditionally quite difficult for artificial systems to do. So managing when not everything is optimal Mm -hmm. and how do they kind of like pick back up after that or restart where they need to. We as humans, we're, we're great at that. So that's something that's a trait of what would be strong AI is that kind of more dynamic, less coded behavior. Okay. So you're, you're saying that the strong artificial intelligence is the artificial intelligence that we all kind of dream of, you know, like an unsupervised system, right? Is that what you are saying, more or less? Like learns on its own, right? Without yeah, a previous training. <laughs> Sorry? Without a previous training, right? Or something like that. Um, it could have previous training. Like, for example, if you look at a child, we do mm-hmm. help young children in their education or learning how to speak over time and things like that. But it's kind of a, to your first point, you're absolutely right in saying it's almost like that unsupervised internal structure. So beyond what it exhibits on the outside, so like to a user or someone interacting with the AI, if you kind of dive in and open it up and look at that brain structure, it's not something that's been hard coded to happen. So it may be reuse of different mechanisms for different purposes. It could be reappropriating some chunks that were designed for one purpose to another and saying, oh, I can reuse this over here, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, I'm going to ask one little more question than I left. Uh, uh, so when I, when, years ago when I was reading, because I'm interested in many subjects on artificial intelligence, I, I've read some things. Do actual algorithms try to imitate the behavior of the brain, the human brain? Like, because you know, there are like new neural networks and things like mm-hmm. that, or have the algorithms uh, be changed and now they are based on other things in general? That's a great question. They are absolutely all in some way, shape, or form rooted in human brain anatomy, behavior, or structure 100%. So code itself was initially constructed and influenced by human thought patterns, behaviors, and kind of emulating those types of structures or task performance-like abilities into something synthetic. So everything that you have in AI is a form of representation derived from a human brain. But that being said, each, each one is kind of applied differently. So you said algorithms that are like humans, right? Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And it's like, if you look at something like cognitive modeling, that's where you specifically create an algorithm, a system grounded by and based in the biology, laws of chemistry and physics specific to the brain regions that you need to emulate that specific behavior. So it gets kind of into a more technical realm where you have things called architectures that govern the way you're allowed to make the code to ensure that it's as close as possible to a human brain. But then you also have the more abstracted versions of computer science where it's it looks less like a human brain, but it's still influenced by historically grounded in and representing certain types of human thought behaviors. Does that kind of make sense? 
Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, thanks very much. Because I that's my two cents on that subject. Because <laughs> yeah, that's that's all I know. That uh, initially the algorithms were based on that, and it's, uh, as you say, they are still rooted on that. That's interesting. Amazing. Um, I have a question actually, because we've been sort of wondering since uh, you are very deep on a topic and the topic, as you said at the beginning, could be a bit confusing or misunderstood. And when people find out what you're doing that are not from the field, like what kind of questions do you usually get or what kind of assumptions people have? Like, are they mostly excited and positive or are people a bit fearful? Oh, goodness. I think it depends on the person. Some people get really excited uh, and they're like, oh, that's so cool. Um, it's very like sci-fi. Other people get really mm. afraid, especially when I talk about emotions. Right. Uh, a lot of people get uncomfortable because there's this very strong mindset that what makes us human is a, a belief that it's like a mystical component So when I tell people, oh, I design AI, especially AI that has feelings, they're like, how can you do that? That doesn't make any sense. Or why would you do that? They're going to take over the world. And so to me, it's almost like a representation of what they think about people. <laughs> that fear isn't necessarily of the AI itself, more so what they're afraid of from other human beings and maybe what a, a more powerful human being could do. So It's, it's always an interesting conversation. Oftentimes I find that people feel it's out of reach, which is a little disheartening to me. And it shows that we have a lot of work to do as scientists. It makes me sad when I tell people, oh, I design AI. And they're like, oh, that's way too smart for me. I'm like, no, like you engage with it all the time. Don't even like it's, it's a part of life. And I feel that we have profited off of the ambiguity or mystery behind a lot of AI algorithms in modern day applications that, and I feel like that kind of needs to stop, you know, we need to kind of open those, those windows and doors a little bit more. Yeah, it's going to be hard because I'm among the people that are afraid of artificial intelligence, especially in the future, but I might not be rooted on any, on any reasoning, but uh, I don't know. And, I feel that, um, I don't know, that maybe it's, a, maybe it's just a, an unreasoning fear, but uh, do you think that in centuries that uh, if we are capable of making an, an aware being mm -hmm. uh, consciousness, that would be dangerous for, for humans itself? Or is it just a, a sci-fi argument or plot? <laughs> Well, first of all, I think you have a really justified fear. When you look at pop culture representations of strong artificial intelligence, it's almost always a bad thing. You know, <laughs> it's, it's dominantly presented as the end of human beings and the death of us all. I don't think that it's artificial intelligence itself that's the problem. Oftentimes, it's the people who are wielding it and the purposes they decide to build it for. That's your problem. So if you have the ability to make a, a super smart, empathetic, compassionate artificial intelligence who could say, for example, act as a, an aide in hospitals to better support the healthcare workers as they go about their extremely busy day with good bedside manner 
and the ability to pause in the hallway to help someone who's struggling to walk to from one room to another. Would you not want that? That sounds... Yeah, I, mean, I, I would want that, definitely, yeah. But I mean, like uh, like uh, celebrities like Elon Musk and even Bill Gates yeah. before... No, I mean, Stephen Hawking before Diane, they were warning about the, the dangers and... Is um, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just humans behind, right? <laughs> so that's the, that's the danger. And that's just it. You know, it's it's the humans that wield this incredible technology that is going to be an issue. How that's governed, how it's how it's understood by the public, and what we do about regulations around ethics is going to be a large determinant of whether or not we successfully integrate stronger AI, maybe not strong yet, but stronger AI into our lives. It's, yeah. I always say to people though, what do you call a human that has no emotion? That's an English. That's an English test. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Uh, So a human being without emotion would be like a a psychopath, right? Oh, there we go. I was, I was, I was about to say this, but then I was like, if I say, (laughs) that's a pretty strong word. If I say the wrong one, it might came out really bad. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're you're totally on the money. Um, And so that's why I want to argue for like. Don't you want the the systems designed to be smart and help you out to maybe have some uh, some empathy where it might be required? You know, any task that requires a human to be kind, why wouldn't you want the AI system to also be kind or to feel that happiness, you know? That's very true. I, I remember when I was uh, reading your articles and there was one about emotions and also mm-hmm. during this uh, conversation we have right now, you mentioned uh, AI and feelings and I find it quite curious because I had no idea that artificial <laughs> intelligence can have feelings or be empathetic. Can you explain a bit more like how is it possible that it can develop those sort of feelings that you would usually um, assign to humans and you know, not necessarily to, as you said, maybe AI that is perceived, especially in mm-hmm. sci-fi movies, as something very robotic mm-hmm. and very dangerous and very sort of like dry in a way, and maybe a bit of yeah. a sociopathic creature. Oh, that's a great question. So we have to start with humans, like all things in AI. This is why I think human factors and and the cognitive scientists, sciences, sorry, are such a large missing component of education for many in computer science. When a human feels an emotion, it's impossible to actually understand the extent to which they're experiencing it, where they're experiencing it. Uh, We can kind of look at some brain scans and things like that to see if different regions light up or whatnot. But at the end of the day, it's a qualitative experience, you know, feeling happy or feeling a little confused or maybe excited or inspired, all of these different types of emotions are experienced differently by the person. So it's a very much individual activity. That being said, when we talk about integrating emotions into artificial intelligence, we need to be able to give it the necessary structures to begin kind of emulating 
this type of internal cognitive behavior. So you start by saying, okay, what's the minimum that I need to include within my structure in order to have the system autonomously call a certain type of reaction to an external source? So in other words, when something happens in, in this agent's life, it needs to be able to have the ability to react to it beyond just a logic source or a predetermined chunk of knowledge. So you give it the necessary system or sufficient amount of abilities within a system to be able to react emotionally. In my master's thesis, actually, we built something called the amygdala module where the agent was able to get internal, almost like gut instincts that came through as it was acting in the environment. So whenever it kind of got like, a, oh no, did I leave the dishwasher on kind of feeling? It came from the amygdala and it was able to show what the kind of internal value is of an interruption coming from an emotion and how that kind of looks side by side when you're doing a task that requires some concentration or some, some unique skills in that way. So kind of building emotions into a system is a, is a really complicated endeavor. Are we ever going to be able to say that we did it properly or we did it right? I don't know if we can. I wonder if that's one of the, the mysteries of human consciousness that we're just not technically able to answer at this point. There's the qualia of it, the qualitative experience unique to the person. We still don't even know if we taste things the same way. The age-old argument is like, is my blue your blue? <laughs> we yeah. don't know. That's, that's the thing. But we can start by giving artificial intelligence systems the ability to recognize emotions in others, to be able to have emotional reactions within the self, that are determined within the context of that agent's brain. And we can start growing it to see if maybe it begins to elicit more complex combinations or complex experiences. That sounds amazing, right? Like basically if I understand mm -hmm. it right, it's like uh, the, the agent itself is kind of developing feelings uh, in mm -hmm. some way, right? In a primitive way, right? Exactly so, wow. exactly so. Well, actually, that made me think about another question. Let me know if that's stupid, or maybe there's an answer to this. But no, is it possible no. that artificial intelligence already now, maybe in the future, is it possible that they will feel feelings like love towards like other people or other artificial intelligence? Like, is it something possible? I think it's possible. I really do. I'm a firm believer in... The possibility of bringing true emotion to artificial intelligence, you know, it wasn't that long ago that people didn't think that animals could experience love and connection. They truly can. You know, we were just trying to measure their intelligence or their emotional intelligence through human methods, which is mm. oh, so human. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. so one of my favorite representations of AI with feelings is actually, um, have you ever seen the movie Blade Runner? Yes. Yeah. Classic. Amazing. So this is one of my favorite films and it's based off of a PK Dick novel called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? There's this character, Rachel, and it's in her memories, in her lived experience, quote unquote, and no spoilers, that 
she's able to almost have emotional connections to her real world surroundings in day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. It's through experience and pain and joy, happiness, memories tied to skill development and growth that lay the foundation for emotional reaction in daily life. If we're able to create ongoing organic memory systems in artificial intelligence that help remind them or help them learn and grow along with certain types of internal emotional systems that kind of emulate what you see in humans, I really feel that we are very likely to be able to develop emotional AI. Wow. So I would ask at this point, do you personally believe that everything reduces to matter, to physical things? I mean, that there is no soul and basically awareness and feelings and everything is just a manifestation of physical activity? That's a great question. I am humbled by existence and I'm very aware of my own flaws as a human. <laughs> I don't think that we're ever going to have the capacity to understand what happens when we die or what the weight of energy and experience actually means. Mm. Now, um, have you ever heard of Immanuel Kant? No. He's a philosopher from way, way back in the day, and he came up with these two terms, noumenal and phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's a way of viewing the universe and life as, as a human being. So when we talk about phenomenal experiences, it's what we actually have access to. So it's the world in terms of our view, our perspective. But the tree would exist as a tree whether or not we are here to view it. So then we turn over to the flip side where we look at the noumenal. So noumenal are all things that we just cannot understand as human beings. We're too limited. So this would include stuff like existence or reality because we cannot imagine the null. We can't imagine not reality or not existence. It's just beyond us and and that's okay. Super good answer. <laughs> I wonder if, for example, AI would be a key for us to understand it somehow. If that's something that we can't comprehend, would it, would AI give us these answers? Oh, that's a beautiful question. I hope so. Just yeah. throw it on the table and everybody can <laughs> think about it. We're getting too philosophical here. I, know. <laughs> I started this. Sorry. Let's, let's go back to. The- <laughs> I guess we might we might see right with the with the future developments and how science would be progressing. Maybe that's yeah. something that would be surprised with as well. It would be nice. That would be really cool, and I think it's totally possible. Okay, I, I have another question. Like, um, and it's related to your current projects. We saw that you're working on some exciting projects, like uh, mm. an app for language acqui- acquisition. Can can you? Mm-hmm. Give us some details on what that is about. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. So a couple months ago, I made a few phone calls to some some people who are brilliant minds in the sciences and academic communities that I know of. And we got together to start working on an app designed to 
facilitate language acquisition. So what that means is just learning a new language, truly, who come from languages that have non-Germanic alphabets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a huge struggle for so many people because not only do recent immigrants to various English-speaking countries need to learn a whole new language, a whole new culture, and a whole new laws and governance, what papers to do here, there, and the other, but they also do so with foreign caricatures or characters, sorry, mm-hmm. in, in the alphabet itself. So if you have a native tongue that uses anything but a Germanic language, so for example, Farsi uh, uses the Arabic alphabet, it would be in different characters. So you're trying to learn a new language and you, it's very difficult to recognize those characters. So we've been working on creating an app through linguistics techniques and cognitive science to help facilitate the acquisition of language, transcending the alphabet structure that so many apps are reliant on. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that sounds great. And what is the status of them? Can you give details or? Uh, yeah, we're building the lexicon right now. So what that means is we're building the internal dictionary of like this corpus of important words and phrases. One of the big parts that we're trying to include is colloquialisms. So this is kind of like the the phrases that that don't seem to make sense to newcomers because they're culturally bound. Like, hey, what's up? Yeah. Totally normal, but like, what's up where? Are, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know? I remember when I had no idea what that means. And every time I say yeah. what's up to Pedro, he answers me Telegram. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I totally get it. It's so tricky. <laughs> Sorry, Pedro. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. That's my humor. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that sounds um, really cool. I think you'll be super helpful, especially learning languages, as you said, that you don't, you don't have any background because it doesn't come from maybe the group of languages that you don't know before. And even the characters are different. It's probably extra hard to to try to get your head around around it. Um, we also read that you're working on another project, right? Which is like a nonfiction book. Can you tell us a bit more about us too? Of course. Yeah, this one I'm, I'm so excited about. I'm writing a book specifically for millennials who struggle with balance and mental health surrounding digital technology. Mm-hmm. So as you know, for the last eight years, I've been working in the field of cognitive science and artificial intelligence, which has left me doing a ton of research on how people interact with computers, software, phones, applications, and so on, but also what this means for their mental health or their cognitive structures. Interesting. As I you know, navigate my life as both a scientist and a human being with you know, friends and, and experiences yeah. outside of my job, I, I began to notice that a lot of the things that are available to people outside of my community are like, oh, well, just put down your cell phone. And I've got friends sitting there like, yeah, but I need it for my job. I can't just put down my phone or, you know, say, well, this is how I connect to my family. I need to be on Instagram or I need to be on Facebook. So what do you say about that, mental health professionals? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this is why I kind of started this project. So 
I touch on a lot of themes from what is problematic technology use, what is going on in your brain. So kind of introducing some of the foundational research on exposure, when you're exposed to technology in your lifespan, you know, how that kind of impacts how your brain develops around it, what this means for reality, like how your brain is constructing reality itself. I also talk a bit about online dating, pornography and relationships, even interactions between different human beings through comments or DMs and what this means for your sense of self really at the end of the day. So a common theme is going to be for, for the readers, how do I construct a sense of self? How do I find balance and healthiness in my life when it's both online and offline? Well, that's super interesting because we, when, Mark when and I talk a lot about the impact <laughs> on, on social networks and, and digital world on, on, on people. Um, at some points it gets sad, right? I think there are a lot of mental health issues related to, you know, um, being connected all day to smartphones or the world that you are sold through these applications. And I don't know if it's, I mean, I, from what I understand, you touched these subjects in a more deeper way, but it's really, really interesting. Well, thank you so much. And you, you both are amazing. And I, I appreciate the support so much because quite honestly, you're right. It's impacting all of us, whether or not you know it or realize it. So if we're going to have it in our life, if we're going to live a hybrid reality where we're connecting to others through a computer or doing work on a keyboard, so on and so forth, then, hey, let's learn how to manage it. Let's learn how to be healthy with it. Because Oh, so yeah, yeah, for sure. We are pre-ordering already. <laughs> I promise I will send you both copies. I'm excited to hear what you think. Of no, course, that's, I'm excited that's to, awesome. to read it. That's a subject that really interests me. Ooh, we yeah. were watching a Netflix documentary, I think it was two days ago or something. Yeah, remember the TikTok? Um, it was about TikTok, right? Influencers. Mm-hmm. And it was sad. It was really sad. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry. for us no i think i think it's really really interesting what you're doing because um so I tackled a similar topic when I did master thesis, but I'm not a scientist. I, I have a design degree, but my sort of idea started from thinking about branding and then how people kind of brand themselves online and offline and what is the comparison and how people are going to live in the online world. So I, I bet yours is going to be way deeper than what I was thinking about. But uh, I think what you said, it's very important that we probably should learn how to navigate it because it's coming and these are not small steps. It's like, coming really fast and mm-hmm. we already see that for example i think i'm not sure how old you are but i think you're still in this uh, age range when you remember time without smartphones and computers you probably played with, with other friends outside mm-hmm. but right now kids i don't know what they do but i think they're kind of thrown into this reality when everything is kind of blended together and I don't know. Like, I think nobody knows how to manage it. So I think any sort of manual or maybe normalization and some guidance of how to deal with this would be super helpful. Oh, that's amazing. And first of all, I want to touch on your master's thesis there. What a fantastic topic. And I'm sure it's incredibly interesting. I would love to read that sometime because you're right. The way you represent yourself in person and online matters. You know, the way that that we experience different forms of interactions through a phone feels 
almost the same. And it, it is the same in a lot of ways to the ways that we experience things in day-to-day life and physical form, yet through a different medium. So in a lot of ways in our brains, especially, you see very st- similar spikes and behaviors from similar types of interactions, regardless of online or offline. Super fascinating. And goodness, I do remember a time without computers. And I remember getting my very first cell phone, what that meant for me, and eventually it becoming something that I didn't leave the house without, which was such a weird realization, you know? I am curious to see what's going to happen in about 50 years from now (laughs) when we look at brain scans. But you're right. A lot of people are growing up with technology in their hands. So you think about it this way. When you're a child, you need to learn what an edge is, like the Mm -hmm. edge of a table. Mm. You start learning about your body through putting it in your mouth as a baby. You know, we start learning about the world quite literally from scratch. You know, there's, there's of course, some things that happen when you're in the womb and being developed from embryo and so on um, through through your mother and through that experience with the environment through through her. But that being said, when you're a baby born, you need to construct what is reality. Mm-hmm. And now you've got all these kids who are developing their construct of reality with a tablet or with constant access to TV or their parents on cell phones or so on and so forth. Grandma comes through FaceTime, you know? Yeah. Mm. What does that what does that mean? What does that mean for experience? What does that mean for their brain structures or reflexes, reactions? It's an interesting topic. It That's is, really yeah. true. And kids scrolling everything they touch. <laughs> I think I saw it the other day. Like, especially, I think the kids who were they were born in a when pan, before pandemic or during pandemic that didn't have much interaction with the outside world besides the house. And I saw some some situations where there was like a frame with a photo inside, and the kids started like touching it and pressing some imaginary buttons and stuff. And it was hilarious. But at the same time, I was like, I was really kind of concerned. Um, but yeah, let's see. As you say, let's see in like fifty years or so, like how this is gonna develop and progress. Um, um, but also talking about it, um, do you? Because there was a lot of conversation about the ethics mm-hmm. of how those things are designed, and I think it also applies to um, AI. Um, yeah, c- can you tell us about uh, about those ethics? Like, what kind of rules apply? What what shouldn't be done at all, um, and stuff like that. I think ethics is a very unfortunately underrepresented topic in digital media development, use, and artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. I feel very strongly about ethics. I think it's incredibly important and it's something that's been a bit overlooked much to our detriment. You know, in our digital age, we look around and so many people are struggling with mental health, whether this is genetic predisposition, cultural, societal, or innately linked to our excessive digital use, it's probably a blend, but I can tell you there's been research since about 1998 linking excessive internet use to the development of depression and anxiety symptoms in users. This has continued on, similar types of results being shown through excessive mobile phone use, social media use, all of these online applications demonstrating that excessive use of technology can lead to extremely poor mental health. 
self-efficacy, relationship qualities, and so on. Our designers back in the day often would exploit human behavioral principles to make something more addictive and still do. You know, we've got textbooks on textbooks telling designers, oh, this is the way people read on a screen. Let's use these strategies to make our platform easier, better, faster, more addictive. Mm -hmm. That's a very, very hot industry topic that is quote unquote governed by ethics, but is it really, you know, who's checking and, and how are we monitoring this release? I'm not sure. So I was going to say also related to that, that, you know, that we were talking because I have the impression everything I say uh, near to my smartphone, and then I get a recommendation based on conversations (laughs) with friends and, and yeah. I guess that's related to your field also because, uh, and the big data, right? Because you need to, all the, these artificial intelligence applications rely on the cloud and big data that they gather through a smartphone. But what's, I mean, do you think that's ethic, ethical? I mean, or do you, what do you think about that going forward? Like, I think people love to hate it in a lot of ways. Mm. It's good when it benefits the user, but it's demonic when it doesn't. Mm. It's definitely not something that I personally wish to have. But that being said, I also recognize that it comes down to how the information is stored and how Mm -hmm. it's treated, really, at the end of the day, I think. So if you're using someone's Google searches to better show them advertisements related to products that they actually need and want, which would benefit them, that sounds a lot healthier than storing recorded conversations to learn about natural language processing without a user's consent and then yeah. feeding that data into a system as training materials. That's not okay. That's not something the user was made aware of. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's, it comes down to what the people are doing with this data and whether or not it's actually respectful or what the user initially thought they were agreeing to. That's Does very that true. Sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think what's, uh, what's quite important that you mentioned that people are usually not aware of it at all. Um, yeah. And there was, I think, also this, I don't remember the title, but it was very, very famous documentary about one guy that was trying, I think, to get information out of social media or like remove information of his kids mm-hmm. of like out of Facebook or something. And it very early turned out that uh, when you click I accept or, you know, whatever cookies or, or stuff like that, Mm-hmm. You sell your information, information of, I think, like your friends, like it's basically a network and it's just so hard mm-hmm. to avoid it. Like it was physically wow. impossible to get this data out at all. And it was, they were usually sold already to third parties. Like it's, it's actually oh, insane yeah. what's happening in the background and we're not aware of it. And I agree with what you said. It's just like, if at least people were aware, maybe some people would agree that, okay, this conversation yeah. is fine because I don't talk about anything personal. You can use it for a scientific matter. But if we don't yeah. know, like that's when it's becoming a bit dodgy. And that's maybe when people becoming scared and very skeptical because it sounds mm-hmm. unfair. That's a really great point. And I love what you said there. It, it brings up a really important catch-22, which is oftentimes it is hidden in the terms and conditions. But what about the people who have to have social media for work and there's no way around it? This is now all of a sudden an unavoidable, inescapable 
situation where even if the people did understand, it's almost like, well, it's such a part of our culture now that you kind of have to or you don't get to participate, which would cut you off from so much. They say it's what, oh, a tool that people use, but it's almost become a cultural pillar in a lot of ways. For example, many have LinkedIn for professional reasons. Many have to have LinkedIn based off of what their employer says. Same goes for Facebook or Twitter. A lot of people are bound to having these social medias. And it's it's hard because you can't access it without agreeing to these types of things. So where does that leave users who want to also engage with their families, friends, or potential other connections without selling away data of their children, you know? Yeah, that's very true. And they're getting excluded, right, from the society. It's very, very exciting. Yeah, I think it's super tricky. And also um, kind of hearing conversations of people that are not sure whether they should give phones to their kids and yeah. like or get, and them getting engaged in social media and stuff. But yeah, what's the option otherwise, right? Like I think when you're an, an adult, it's already hard because even though yeah. you're aware, but it's still so hard. And I don't know if you had experience of deleting like Instagram a few times from your phone yeah. <laughs> and like all the socials. And you anyways come back because people text you there or like you feel like you're missing out. Like, I think it's super hard, super hard. Oh, 100%. I mean, I did that. I was finding that when, a couple years ago, I was engaging too much with comparative culture. So this mm-hmm. is this social practice where people compare themselves to others and in turn use it as a way of generating sales, generating followers, perpetuating looks like fashion, makeup, dieting culture, so on and so forth. And they even sometimes use this as a compliment. Like, I don't know if you've ever gotten this, but someone will be like, oh, you're so much better looking than the other person. It's like, ew, why can't we both be good looking? You know, rude. Um, so I, I've deleted social media a few times for different reasons and it is limiting. There's so many things that want to know how many followers you have or how much you engage with certain things. And if you choose to stop participating or to restart your participation to make a better, more healthy network for yourself or whatever your reasons may be, heck, it could impact whether or not you get that next promotion or whether or not you get that next opportunity. Yeah. The other day we were talking to Avi Loeb, a famous astronomer. He he was telling us the impact of social networks in the science community and it was scary. Like uh, many scientists chose to be more successful in in Instagram or (laughs) Twitter rather than pursuing the truth uh, in the science. And and it was scary. scary. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. Okay. I want to ask a question, a personal question. Um, I'm really amazed at the fact that you're working on such uh, interesting projects like the uh, amygdala thing that you mentioned and also the, um, I don't know, I can't remember right now, but um, yeah, the acquisition app, uh, acquisition language app. I mean, as a scientist, uh, what would be the thing that you would like to achieve uh, personally uh, before you die? Uh, what would be the <laughs> thing that will fulfill you, really? Oh, beautiful question. I hope that I keep having to ask myself that question time and time again, to be honest with you. Okay. 
right now it's my book. It's creating this, this piece for, for my generation, for hopefully even generations to come because I have the knowledge, I have the experience and I need to help people because of that. I, I owe it to, to people to do my best to put all of this knowledge I've acquired into a place where it's easy to read. You don't need to be a scientist to understand the materials and hopefully maybe it will help some people in navigating. Definitely. This I mean, like the subject lot. itself, uh, seems really exciting. I'm really excited to read it, to be honest. I'm not lying. <laughs> Thank you. You honor me. That right now is my big goal for myself. And I feel so passionately about it. Hopefully after that, I find, I find some more questions and maybe write some more books or new projects. For a long time, it was working on the agent that I started actually back in grad school and kind of building her, so on and so forth. I've taken a, a, some time away from her and developing her cognitive structure for some time. Maybe I'll get back to it. Dust <laughs> <laughs> off the old cobwebs and uh, start coding into her a little more. Um, but yeah, we'll see where life takes me. I mean, I'm sure you both know we, we start off with one dream and hopefully achieve all we can in that road. And it leads us to another, right? True. That's Very true. true. <laughs> you never know what the roads are going to lead to you. Uh, yes. Know. And what lessons we're going to learn on the way. Yeah. And uh, do you think like, um, because it's when you told us how you started, like how you got into the field, I would never expect this answer. <laughs> the, your answer about the lyrics of the song, I was like, wow, okay, didn't expect that. But uh, you've been in the field for like a good few years already. And um, can you recall if, I bet they were, but what are the valuable lessons they learned? Um, like what, what, is there anything that your job for, like uh, taught you and uh, are you applying it in your daily life? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Honestly, so much. I don't think I would be half the person I am today had I not found cognitive science. Being in a multidisciplinary field forces you to look beyond your own self. So constantly challenging your own opinions, perspectives, and it, it makes you listen more, I think, in a lot of ways. I learned a lot from my mentor, uh, Dr. Robert West. He always took the time to explain to me how I could better challenge my own thoughts and perspectives and therefore be a better scientist, which was very good. I've learned from him that humility is one of the greatest strengths of an expert because quite honestly, you know, this whole quote unquote, fake it till you make it mentality is, uh, can I swear? Yeah, Yeah, sure. Go for it. (laughs) This is called YOLO podcast. I mean, you can do anything you want. (laughs) Amazing. The the fake it till you make it mentality is bullshit. And it takes away your opportunity to become an expert in a field. So approaching life with humility and the willingness to learn is so important. It's, it's been a wild ride and cognitive science has definitely changed me as a person. I also have found myself adopting a lot more kind of uh, mindfulness practices in my day-to-day life, which has been huge. So kind of looking at ways I can better manage my thoughts or better accept 
the situation for what it is rather than what I want it to be. And I haven't always been perfect at this, but mm-hmm. having having this scientific background kind of gives me the tools to pick myself up when I make mistakes or to acknowledge when a situation has not been good for me or brought out the best of me and say, okay, what did you learn? And how do you not repeat the same mistakes? Does that make sense? A lot of sense. <laughs> I'm going to ask my last the stupid question. Because yeah. of... <laughs> oh, come <laughs> on. Questions. You guys are amazing. I've seen too many science film movies, I, I think. But uh, <laughs> do you think it's possible we live in a simulation, given the power <laughs> that we are generating with artificial intelligence and, and the fact that potentially we can generate an artificial simulation eventually? Well, there's a chance. There's absolutely a chance. This is all a simulation. <laughs> I don't know, though. Again, like... <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's why it's my silly question. This right? question. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, have to no, I love it. And it's so important. I mean, even Descartes was asking questions like that. It's not a stupid question. Okay. <laughs> so. Oh goodness! No, we could be. We could be. What do you think? Do you think we're in a simulation? I think sometimes everything tastes like chicken. So, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so maybe, maybe yes. You're vegetarian for too long. You don't even remember how chicken tastes like. Maybe that's okay. why. <laughs> You've said something. Just like, just like we miss some chicken taste in our lives. <laughs> we gotta get you some better food, my friend. Yeah, true. Oh, yeah, or that. <laughs> <laughs> very nice uh, okay I think we have one more question for you um, I think you open our minds to a lot of new things that we're not aware of in AI and I think you have really amazing principles and plans about how you want to um, maybe kind of shift people's perception and we talk about ethics and, and a lot of super interesting stuff and my last question would be like um, if let's say if somebody would like to get into the the industry and the, the, the science field, like what would you advise them to do? And what would you like maybe the future of, of um, AI and cognitive science to be? Great question. Science benefits from multidisciplinary backgrounds. A lot of our forefathers and industry creators and innovators have a lot of different experiences underneath their belt. So just because you don't come from what you consider to be quote unquote right background for AI, do it anyways. Do it because you're passionate. Find the certifications or skills that you need for a certain type of job and and go. If you feel passionate about creation, about understanding intelligence, what that even means or what it means to be conscious, AI is a great field for you. It's applied philosophy in a lot of ways. It's neuroscience and psychology. It's so many components and aspects of life brought together in in a beautiful and emergent field. But that being said, there's a lot of problems. And a lot of people are using it to just create profitable tools or, mm-hmm. or through exploitative means. And it's something to be wary of as well. I'd say do it for the right reasons. I also understand that people need to put food on the table for their families. So try to do it as ethically and as best as you can in whatever capacity as you have. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I have, I have one last question. Sorry. Oh, sure. Do you yeah. know any uh, artificial intelligence <laughs> joke? <laughs> <laughs> do you know any artificial intelligence joke? 
Oh, oh no, no. Now no. I'm on the spot. I can't think of any. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm going to think of one in like two hours from now and be like, damn it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can get back to us. Yeah. Send you a little message like, oh. <laughs> Uh, out of jokes I, i would like to i appreciate a lot that you've been here in our show it has been really interesting and i'm fascinated about your work and your future book so make sure that we get a copy uh <laughs> i want to read i want to read it um what do you think marta i will give a five stars review straight away no mm -hmm. doubt <laughs> and yeah it's it's been super interesting and time flies it's been an hour already but uh it was a massive pleasure to have you here and i hope that people get so much out of it and we want to thank you for your energy for sharing your knowledge and we didn't know that this conversation will go so many places so that was really really broad and really awesome to talk to you Uh, you both are absolutely amazing thank you so much for having me and for your incredible questions It has been such a great experience and I love talking about this stuff. You both are absolutely incredible and you can bet that I am going to be sending you the book. Yeah. I am Perfect. We'll, we'll have you here again. So. <laughs> Perfect. And we can talk it out. I'm excited to hear oh, what yeah. you think. Definitely. And now we are blushing. Everybody's blushing right now. We are not oh, having video. any video recording. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, okay, sense. Kate. Thanks a lot and have a nice day. And we're waiting for the book. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so what do you think, Pedro? Did you well, enjoy our conversation, our guests? I did really enjoy it. Yeah, I think uh, it's been it's been really interesting. Um, Kate really explains subjects very well, and she's working in very interesting deep subjects. And I'm really looking forward to her book, to be honest, because I think it's a really needed book in this society. And I really feel felt really comfortable with the subject. I admit that uh, I am still afraid of artificial intelligence, and yeah. maybe because I have been watching this uh, Black Mirror <laughs> Netflix uh, <laughs> episode and, you know, but I'm, I kind of felt a little bit more relaxed with, uh, with after talking to her in the sense that, yeah, we might not be that much afraid and it's going to be really, really exciting the years ahead. Uh, what was your impression? Mm, I think I agree with you a lot with the the bit of fear that it's coming from, yeah, like Black Mirror and movies like that. But um, I I hope that you know AI will be in such hands as as hers because she she sounds like a person who really want to make sure that uh, is developing into like ethical direction and um, not use it as a weapon against humanity and stuff. And I think um, I bet there was a lot of things to to be done there. And there's always a risk that they'll, they'll end up in the wrong hands. But mm. I guess, yeah, I don't know if there can be anything done uh, with it, but I think it was awesome. Uh, and it was great to to hear so much and, and talk. I love to talk about uh, identity and emotions. It's super interesting. I had no idea, for example, about the emotional side of AI. That was very eye-opening, but yeah, super cool conversation. And yeah, it was we, really nice with that subject. Yeah, hmm. yeah, and we can probably uh, we can I, I guess we can if somebody wants to learn more about the topic, we can link the uh, the website, maybe some articles because yeah, it's a super super nice topic, and uh, and maybe a lot of a lot of, uh, a lot of misconceptions around it. So okay. I promise next uh, podcast I'll improve my jokes. So <laughs> <laughs> they were good, Cohen. <laughs> okay, we all so, enjoyed them. <laughs> so time to say goodbye to our listeners, and uh, yes. we'll see you in next episode. 
Bye, mom. Do vysenia. Do vysenia? Is that the right Polish? Do vysenia, yeah. Papa. <laughs> buenos dias. No, te not buenos dias. Ciao. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> Adios. <laughs> Adios. Do vysenia. Bye. It's time to look at the enemy Look in the mirror if he is no friend to me It's not working out, maybe it's the chemistry it's